Welcome to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel, and today we are looking ahead to 2022 to podcasts I will be doing and a little bit about people my listeners will meet. In 2021, we met two women who had been accused of crimes they had not committed. They served 14 and 17 years in prison. I'm going to be inviting more women exonerees to join us on pursuing justice in the coming months. Did you know that only 8% of all exonerees are women? Did you know that they are most often accused of crimes against children, as in shaken baby syndrome, now called abusive head trauma? Or they were part of the sexual abuse hysteria, which peaked in the 1980s through the 1990s. In those cases, a crime never occurred, but women were sent to prison anyway. Jen Reach spoke of her case just a couple months back. In our last podcast, I mentioned two authors who have agreed to be my guests next year. One of the books is called Invisible Child, written by Andrea Elliott. At the core of this book is the issue of homelessness. Right now, 1.338 million children are homeless in the United States, and one in 12 live in New York City. People who are homeless are disproportionately involved in the criminal justice system, both as victims and offenders. Housing is a challenge in cities across the country. Those without a home are 11 times more likely to be arrested. HUD, Housing and Urban Development, reports that a half a million people were homeless on any given night in back in 2017. I'm sure it's a different number now. Seven million were homeless in 2014. 80% are temporarily homeless due to a sudden life change. 50% of those are mothers with children escaping domestic violence. And speaking of that, Netflix now has an incredible series called Made, M-A-I-D, which shines a light on this very, very incredible topic. It is so excellent and well worth watching. I watched the entire series, so I do recommend it. Around 50,000 people end up in homeless shelters after being released from prison as they have no other options. So back to Invisible Child. It was reviewed by the New York Times in the book review on October 10th, and the New York Times magazine section had a picture of the main character in the book. Her name is Dasani um, on October 3rd. So it's gotten huge publicity. What the author Andrea Elliott has done is put a face on the issue of homelessness by introducing us to Dasani, 
named, of course, after the water, who is 11 years old when we meet her first. She lives in the Auburn family residence in Brooklyn, New York, with her mom, her stepdad, and seven siblings. They all live in one room. The fire alarm system in the shelter is inoperable. The heat cut off in the winter. Mice and roaches are an ongoing problem, along with common bathrooms that remained uncleaned and the bathrooms were a haven for sexual assaults. Ms. Elliott spent eight years writing this book. She followed Dasani and her family everywhere. By the way, the book is 602 pages. That includes many pages of footnotes. Elliot injected herself into all the places the family frequented. Other shelters, schools, courts, welfare offices, therapy sessions, and parties. Elliot obtained 14,000 pages of official documents from report cards to drug tests to city records secured through the Freedom of Information Law requests. We also get to know Chanel, you know what she was named after, Dasani's mother, and Supreme, Dasani's stepdad. We watch as they both battle addiction. Dasani's siblings are Aviana, age 10, Maya, age 7, Heda, age 6, Papa, age 5, and the last two children belong to Supreme, Kalik, age 11, and Nana, age 10, and baby Lili. There is a wonderful quotation at the beginning of this book by James Baldwin. For these are all our children. We will all profit from or pay for what they become. What I'd like to do now is read a little of the book to give you a flavor with the hope that you will be eager to tune in on February the 8th to meet Andrea Elliott. And what I have just done is try to find out if Dasani, who looms so large in the entire book, if she would come on on a separate podcast. So I let you know that next year. All right. So here is a little bit from chapter three of Invisible Child by Andrea Elliott. Dasani closes her eyes and tilts her head towards the classroom ceiling. She has missed breakfast again, the free one at Auburn, where she lives, with its long lines, and the free one at McKinney, her school, with its sharp curfew. She tries to drift. She sees Florida. For a child who's never been to the beach, television ads are transporting. She's walking in the sand. She crashes into the waves. Dasani, her teacher cries out. She opens her eyes. There is Miss Hester battling, batting those lashes. The teacher still doesn't know where Dasani lives. And often children who are homeless 
don't want anyone to know that. Or how hungry she gets. She comes in late most mornings, never saying why. She seems sleepy as if she just rolled out of bed. The truth is that Dasani has been up for hours. By the time other children are just waking, she has finished her chores and scrambles to walk her siblings to their bus stop. This would alarm any teacher prompting a call home or possibly to the authorities, so Dasani keeps it to herself. Every morning she slips into class quietly, tucking her coat and backpack into the closet, a precious ritual for a girl with no other closet. Her sixth grade homeroom, in quotes, true to its name, is becoming a substitute home, a cozy haven of book-lined shelves and inspirational phrases scrawled in chalk. Dasani likes to read them out loud. Success doesn't come without sacrifice and struggle, she reads after settling into her desk. Miss Hester sees that Dasani lacks proper clothes and snacks, even basic school supplies, yet the child is keeping up in class, performing well enough to mask her troubles. She possesses to Miss Hester's mind an intuitive approach to learning, the kind that comes when rare smarts mix with extreme circumstances. Others at McKinney, her school, are noting the same promise. Dasani's intelligence is uncanny and her thought content far surpasses peers her age, writes a counselor at the school. Principal Holmes can also see it, and she calls Dasani, quote, a precious little button, the type of girl who could become anything, even a Supreme Court justice, if she harnesses her gifts in time. Dasani has something that hasn't even been unleashed yet, says the principal. It's still being cultivated. For now, Dasani's greatest skill might be one of obfuscation. She shrugs when teachers ask why she is late. She pretends not to notice when her classmates wear new Jordans. She stays quiet when they brag about their sleepovers, an invitation Dasani could never take, much less make. She comes to dance class without a leotard, sitting in the corner, stretching her little legs across the wide wooden floor. But as soon as the music starts, her body feels free, when I'm happy, I dance fast, she says. When I'm sad, I dance slow. When I'm upset, I dance both. Dasani's been dancing for as long as she can remember. She burst into it as a little girl, showing much confidence that her mother, so much confidence that her mother took her to Times Square. Dasani remembers breakdancing before a crowd of tourists, the family's boombox blaring, when a man walked up and handed her a dollar bill. She spent it on fries. Every so often, Dasani and her siblings dance on the train for money. They arrange themselves behind her in the shape of a diamond with Dasani at the tip. She is their choreographer, a word she will first hear at McKinney, though she has been doing it for years. I don't listen to the beat, she says. I listen to the words. The words tell you to do something. Now it's Miss Harris, the dance teacher, who is telling Dasani what to do. She must learn to point her toes like a ballerina and to fall back into a graceful bridge. Every night, Dasani practices in Auburn's communal bathroom 
leaping and gliding across the floor as her siblings take turns showering. Dance, she is starting to see, is more than spontaneity. It's a craft of discipline, a way of organizing the mind and the body. Unlike the disorder at welfare appointments, the piles of unsorted socks, McKinney's dance studio is a place where time is kept and routines are mapped. The dancers are hard at work rehearsing a hip hop routine for the winter recital. Dasani has memorized every part. From off to the side, she copies the other girls, moving her arms and legs in tandem. She is captivated by the star, a popular girl named Sahai. Tall and limber, Sahai moves like a trained ballerina. There's nothing, it seems, she cannot do. She's in the middle school's reigning, she is the middle school's reigning valedictorian, carrying herself through the halls like a queen her silky hair pinned by a giant bow. You can be popular in one of three ways, her mother's words ring. Dasani's frayed sneakers are no match for the trendy Dr. Martin's boots, flaunted by other students. So she applies herself to her studies. And by October, Dasani has made the honor roll. Dasani often starts a sentence with, Mommy say, before reciting verbatim some new bit of learned wisdom, such as peppermint tea cures a bad stomach, or that lady is a dope fiend. She rarely wavers or hints at doubt, even as her life is consumed by it. She never talks about the biological father who vanished after she was born. The only person she calls daddy is the one she can see, her 35-year-old stepfather, Supreme who has been around since she was two. She likes a mystery to be solved. She likes hard, cold facts, hence her obsession with the show Criminal Minds, followed by Law and Order, Without a Trace, Cold Case, and The First 48 in that exact order. She watches these shows from a television propped on two milk crates, she hushes her siblings as the crime unfolds, guessing at the plot, mimicking the detectives. She could see herself as one of those hard-nosed prosecutors pacing back and forth in a tailored suit. She would drill into witnesses with the same precision. Her jury would watch in awe as she holds all those low-life thugs to account. Other times, Dasani pretends to be a newscaster she calls Dr. Coates, holding an imaginary microphone as if speaking to a live camera. She says, hello, my name is Dr. Coates, and I am here to report that Barack Obama is the first black president to win the election. Dasani never tires of saying she shares her president's skin color. Yeah, but he lives in the White House, says Chanel. It's for the whites, it's not for any of us. Everyone knows Dasani's mother. Chanel weighs 215 pounds and her face is a constellation of freckles lit by a gap-toothed smile. The street is her domain. When she walks, people often step to the side in deference to her ample frame or her imperious air. She has three names, each taken from a different chapter of life. 
The old folks use her birth name, Chanel. By the time she was running the street, she went by Lady Red, owing to the copper-hued hair she got from her mother, who got it from her father, an inheritance Chanel traces to the white slaveholders of her ancestors. On her right arm is the tattoo, Lady Red, from her time running a crack house for the Bloods. To new acquaintances, she introduces herself by a third name, Makeba, which she took when she left the Bloods to marry a man. The slave name chosen by his parents, Eric, the street name chosen by gang bat bangers, Ratface, and the righteous name chosen by himself, God Supreme. He gives his wife the vaunted titles of Earth and Queen. Yet Chanel is the word that comes first to her tongue. She sees no reason to shed one name for another. They all claim space within her kaleidoscope self. When she's feeling up, she wraps her hair in a tubular scarf in homage to her African roots. When she is down, she hides between a wool hat, the kind she hawks on the streets of Brooklyn. She can't be bothered with the trappings of femininity, things like hair weaves and acrylic nails. Her uniform is a pair of men's sneakers, size nine, and her husband's extra large coat. She is often spoiling for a fight, and her brawls are legendary. Chanel was 19 the first time she went to Rikers Jail for busting a cop in the head with a bottle at a corner store in Bedford-Stuyvesant after he struck her in the face with his walkie-talkie. A five-minute trek through Brooklyn's Fulton Mall can take Chanel hours for all the greetings, gossip, recriminations, and nostalgia. She is in everyone's business, scoping out snitches, offering homeopathic remedies, tattling on a girl's first kiss. I'ma keep my eyes on you this summer, she warns a lanky teen named Cece. Chanel's always on the move, plotting her next hustle, sweet-talking anyone she owes $10. While other people want the glamorous life of Jay-Z, Chanel would settle for being his pet. Just let me be the dog. Shit, I don't care where you put me. When she laughs, she tilts her head back and unleashes a thunderous cackle. These theatrics are something of a decoy. They distract from Chanel's most vulnerable parts, the way a car's shiny hood covers an intricate engine. Her mind is always turning, dipping into the past, guessing at the future, extracting wisdom from her current set of troubles. She ruminates on an endless supply of memory and longing, the scent of her newborn before Lily was taken by caseworkers last year the echo of her late mother's laugh. Sometimes she'll stop dead in her tracks, interrupting a crowded sidewalk to stare at a stranger. A woman's scrunched up mouth means she hasn't had enough sex. A boy's swagger suggests a home without a father. She has what she calls a bloodhound nose, sniffing out phoniness in seconds. Such inclinations have caused her earned her the reputation of being nosy, a habit she does not deny. I want someone else's life, Chanel says. That's why I always be watching. She can spend hours analyzing her interaction with anyone white, 
how the social worker's voice tightened, suggesting a hidden disdain, how the man in a suit brushed past her on the train as if his body mattered more. A person's face is a map. Those who look to the left are lying. Those who smile too much are wearing a frozen turned up, a frozen turned upside down. Chanel engages in endless wordplay, reciting lyrics, composing raps. An internal soundtrack accompanies her life. She switches from song to song like the dial on a radio, a bit of Luther Vandross, a smattering of Rihanna. She'll hum a tender tune like Mercy, Mercy Me, only to stop before it gets to the best of her. No one is age or go quiet, keeping the worst thoughts to herself. She is forever revisiting the facts of her life, trying to imagine it had the, cho had the choices been different. I don't love myself, she says. That's my biggest downfall of Invisible Child. And I am so eager to have Andrea on the podcast next year. I hope you've enjoyed our walk back through the many, many podcasts that we have done in 2020 and 2021. Please continue to listen as we cross over to 2022. I'm Harriet Hendel. Thanks for listening to my podcast today. You have been listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. And I'm your host, Harriet.